Hi, another uh, warm welcome to Oxford. And before I introduce uh, Karen, I'd like to say a big thank you to Lindsay and Alexis for arranging such a wonderful <coughs> conference, which looks uh, set to be a really, really wonderful day. So it's a huge pleasure to introduce Karen Hunt, um, who's a professor of modern British history at Keele University. Karen is also chair of the Social History Society. And as will be uh, very familiar to everybody here, her work has been so important in excavating the political lives of British women, um, especially in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, her book, Equivocal Feminists, which explored the women of the SDF, and then her collaborative work with June Hannan on socialist women. Um, in recent years, uh, Karen says to me she's become immersed in the First World War, um, she's one of the advisors to the BBC's World War I at Home project. And one of the uh, many um, fascinating intellectual <laughs> ventures which she's currently working on is towards a book uh, on women in the politics of food in uh, World War I. And I think that really speaks to um, why Karen's work has been so important, that sense of reaching out and recovering the texture of women's political um, engagement in, and how it forms part of the warp and weft of their everyday lives in their relationships and in their communities as well as on the, the national and global scale. Um, she's also involved in the Comparative Global Project on gendering World War I. Um, today, Karen's going to talk to us um, about uh, a subject that has long been on the agenda, I think it's fair to say, yes. uh, the life and politics of the socialist feminist Dora Montefiore. And so a very warm welcome to Karen, who's going to be talking to censorship and self-censorship, revisiting the belt case in the making of Dora Montefiore. So, here is the, the, the woman I'm going to be talking about. Um, when I was invited to speak at this conference and heard that the theme was censorship and suppression, I immediately thought of the Belt case. Um, and I hope that as you listen to what I've got to say to you, you'll begin to see why that immediately sprang to mind. Dora Montefiore, who you see here, qualifies as a subject as she herself was a life writer, including publishing her autobiography, interestingly called From a Victorian to a Modern, in 1927. And as, as Catherine alluded to, I have been pursuing aspects of her life in one way or another as a biographer for most of my career. However, I, I did pause for a moment when I realised that the main heading for the day was silence in the archives. In the Belt case, the archive can actually be rather noisy, with conflicting accounts and lots of gossip, as well as being more than a little slippery, as confidential information was shared and letters stolen, passed around and destroyed without the author's permission or knowledge. But there are also silences. But to make sense of the silence, I think we need to tease out what is hidden within or beneath the noise. So, I therefore hope to convince you that for our purposes today, the Belt case is worth revisiting. 
Now, it's a revisiting for me because I've tussled with it on a number of occasions. For me, the case has been principally a means to explore the peculiar role that gossip had for Victorian and Edwardian socialists in policing the boundary between the public and the private. In earlier papers, I was interested in the ways in which gossip between political activists could affect a woman's reputation and her subsequent political practice. I wanted to know whether such gossiping was gendered and whether it necessarily had gendered outcomes. I've also explored the Belt case as a crucial element in the construction of Dora Montefiore as a difficult woman, a phrase that may have resonances for some of you, I don't know. In this, today, in this, in this case, what I'm going to do is to try and use the Belt case, and I am going to explain what that means in a moment, um, to discuss the role of censorship in Montefiore's self-representation and the challenges that this presents to her biographer, i.e. me. So, first, as they say, let me tell you a story. And as I go along, I will introduce you to my cast of characters. So... The Belt Case. In July 1898, Dora Montefiore, a 46-year-old middle-class widow, joined the clarion van for a fortnight as it toured the Midlands, bringing socialist propaganda to rural villages. She was already a cultured woman. The Clarion, a socialist newspaper, commented that her knowledge of the world and books made her a very interesting vanner. She was well-travelled, she'd spent her married life in Australia, and she was already a committed suffragist in the Womanhood League of New South Wales in Australia, the Union of Practical Suffragists uh, in this country, and the Women's Local Government Society. It was her desire to find out more about socialism which led her to volunteer to work on the Clarion van. And one of her co-vanners was this man. We have less pictures of George Belt. So this is George Belt, who at this time was a working-class married man in his early 30s. He was an experienced socialist, the paid organiser for the Independent Labour Party in Hull, and had been elected to the local school board and to the city council. He was a building labourer by trade and had long been a trade union activist, having been a defendant in a celebrated trade union legal case in 1893. So, after meeting on the van, so this van tours around bringing propaganda to rural villages, Belt and Montefiore began to correspond, mostly on literary matters, and when he came to London on school board business, he stayed at her home. And he was there just before Christmas in 1898 when he was taken ill, he seems to have had some kind of breakdown. When out with Montefiore and her son, quote, he behaved in a most eccentric way in the street, speaking to people he didn't know and constantly stopping and laughing out loud. The next morning they had to break into his room where Belt was quite naked in a crouched up position on a sheet on the floor. Eventually he was taken to the local infirmary where for a time he was kept in a padded room but he was discharged within a fortnight. During his convalescence, he continued to correspond with Montefiore against the advice of doctors and political colleagues. And it was now suggested that the character of this correspondence had changed. 
Davison, secretary of Hull ILP, who had come to London to accompany Belt when he was discharged from the infirmary, said that he had been shown a letter that Belt wrote from the infirmary to Montefiore. He said later, when he'd already made clear that he wanted to distance himself from his former comrade, that, quote, it was a love letter, such as a lad of 18 would have written, saying he had loved her from the first time he had seen her. It was also reported that in his, quote, mad passion, Belt had shouted out Fedora, and the use of her forename suggesting an intimacy between the two. Most of the time, people called themselves Mrs. or Mr. or Comrade. Private letters ceasing to be private was to be crucial in what was about to become the Belt case and would eventually lead to a slander case. As part of Belt's convalescence, he went rather unwillingly on a brief holiday to Hastings with his wife, who was eight months pregnant. On the 8th of February 1898, she discovered a letter from Montefiore to Belt, and she sent this letter to Dr Webster, lately of Hull ILP, with whom Belt had been convalescing. Now, Webster made a copy of the letter, and he sent the original to Davison. And these two men were to be central actors in the Belt case. This letter was in turn copied by other people, and it was to prompt Belt's dismissal. It was also to be crucial to the slander case. Now, the letter does not survive, although one of those who saw it said, it is a remarkable letter, to say the least, for a lady of good social position to write to a bricklayer's labourer. The letter apparently included arrangements to meet at nearby Battle and in London. At this stage, Davison commented that Belt should be asked to resign, or else better dismiss him, he seems to become a cur. Meanwhile, Belt returned to Hull on the 21st of February and the next day attended a Hull ILP meeting where he was cut by all his friends. At a meeting soon after, according to Davison, Belt was at first abusive and then admitted that in three months he would probably be living with Mrs Montefiore. He was asked to resign. Gossip about Belt grew in Hull, at least according to Davison, and subscriptions to the wages fund for the organiser, which basically paid his salary, dried up. At a branch meeting in March, the 20 members present agreed that Belt should be given notice. The supposedly incriminating letter was passed around this meeting. While all this was happening, a major building dispute broke out in Hull, and Belt was busy addressing mass meetings. He was still a councillor and a school board member. Despite the local ILP's anxieties and behaviour, in all the coverage in the local press of Belt as a prominent local activist, there was no suggestion of any scandal, although his ill health was mentioned and treated sympathetically. At the beginning of April, the annual conference of the Independent Labour Party was held in Leeds, and although Belt usually attended on behalf of Hull ILP, he was removed from his role and replaced by Davison. And it was while attending this conference as a visitor that Dora Montefiore had a conversation with Keir Hardy, who was leader of the, uh, the Independent Labour Party. So this was now becoming more than a little local difficulty. 
The next day, Montefiore wrote a letter to Hardy, which began an extensive correspondence with the many parties to this dispute. She offered to arrange to pay a pound a week for three months into the wages fund, provided that her anonymity was protected. She said, George Belt's self-respect will not suffer if it is done in this way, and it will be a great pleasure to me to feel that I am helping not only the movement, but also the man I care for, at a time when he is far from well and requires help and sympathy instead of harsh and unfair treatment. Three days later, I hope you're keeping up with this, three days later, Margaret MacDonald also a member of the Independent Labour Party and wife of future Labour Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, wrote to Keir Hardy. This was her first intervention, but not her last. She was anxious that the rumours be stopped. She later said it was her husband, Ramsay MacDonald, who had heard that Belt and Montefiore were carrying on a clandestine correspondence and that as a consequence Belt had been discharged from his office as ILP organiser. So basically it was Ramsey who had listened to gossip at the party conference. Ramsey cautioned his wife to be careful about Mrs Montefiore. But it didn't rest there. Margaret Macdonald decided to go and see Keir Hardy about the matter. And now the concerns were about Montefiore rather than Belt, who Macdonald clearly didn't know. In the correspondence that raced between various parties and Hardy, he seems to have been particularly sensitive to the class differences between the two possible lovers. He advised Dora not to tempt Belt into what he called a life of indolence. She replied, I do not and could not lead such a life myself, and I'm bringing up my two children as workers. This separates me from my own family who look upon me as a crank. And how could I tempt anyone I was interested in to do what would be morally impossible for me to do? Margaret MacDonald then decided to visit Montefiore, whom she knew from their work for the International Council of Women's Congress, which was to be held in London in July of that year. Montefiore was the recording secretary for the Congress. In MacDonald's account, she says she went round to Montefiore's home and made it clear that she had got her version of events from Keir Hardy. She said she didn't preach at Montefiore, but she later explained to Hardy, I simply felt that I must somehow, in the feeblest and cheeriest way, try to help her after what you told me. It was as if I had seen someone near a precipice and instinctively drew near, lest perhaps I might put out a helping hand to keep her from falling over. However, Montefiore didn't see it like that. She, in turn, wrote to Hardy, saying that she was surprised by MacDonald's visit, particularly as MacDonald said she had heard from Hardy that it was Montefiore's intention to go and live with George Belt. So... As you can hear, the gossip ratcheted up. Dora Montefiore felt she had to remind Keir Hardy of what she had already made clear. These are her words. Nothing passed between us, 
As to any future plans or intentions of mine, I should never have dreamt of discussing the subject with you or with anyone else, and I declined to do so with Mrs MacDonald, telling her at the same time that I should write and ask you, in justice, to myself, to write a line contradicting the false impression she has received, that between you and me, the subject of any future relations between George Belt and myself was discussed. Of course, I was surprised that at any point of the conversation between us was reported, because I understood it was a confidential one. But I'm beginning to learn that the word confidential has not with others the sense that I attach to it. And when one sees the other letters which Keir Hardy was receiving at this time, it seems that few of those concerned had much sense of what in confidence actually meant. Hardy did correct Margaret MacDonald's misstatement, and Montefiore thanked him for his actions, adding, Such meddling gossip is equally distasteful to me as it is to you, but in the cause of justice and fairness I feel bound to stand by Mr Belt, who has been unjustly dismissed from his appointment in the Hull ILP. Meanwhile, Davison, on behalf of Hull ILP, had turned down Montefiore's offer to subsidise Belt's wages and Belt had been dismissed from his post. On the 27th of April, Montefiore wrote a long letter to Keir Hardy, setting out her side of the story. She described with us as outstanding, or astounding frankness, the development of a platonic, and what she called intellectual and soul friendship. During Belt's visit before Christmas, she said, quote, his attitude to me was that of respectful friendship, and I had no idea then that his feeling was of any other nature than that of friendship. One evening, however, two days before he was to leave, something was said that made us both feel conscious that there was more in the feelings of both of us than we had ever acknowledged to ourselves. But that consciousness came through silence and not through any words and we were both strong enough not to betray ourselves. She then described in alarming detail Belt's breakdown and the effect it had on her and her household. She mentions the letters Belt wrote from the infirmary. Some were, she said, disconnected, some quite sane, and it was one of these letters repeating all his feelings for me and stating that he never meant to live with his wife again that I showed to Webster. She reminded Hardy, You must remember, please, that from the time George Belt and I had known our feelings towards each other, we had never had an opportunity for further conversation. And now he seemed to be coming back, almost from the grave. I felt, and he, and, and he felt I know from his letters, that there was much to discuss and explain whenever he should be well enough for it. After he was discharged from hospital, he insisted on returning to Montefiore's home before he was taken off by Dr Webster to recuperate in Leeds. When they were able to be alone, Belt told her that he would not leave until she assured him that her feelings remained the same as before his illness. She reassured him and told him that, if anything, it had brought them closer together. He then wrote to her every day from Leeds and she told Keir Hardy that these letters were different to those before his illness. She said that it was during this time, no doubt, when his mind was still unsettled and his thoughts exaggerated 
that he said many things which had been put down as foolishness, but which it might have been more fair to see as the effects of a very terrible illness. He mentally clung to me as a protest against the treatment he was receiving. For her, the narrative of these events did not focus on her or Belt's improper behaviour. She denied that propriety was breached in any way. She was more concerned with the behaviour of the socialist men, Webster and Davison. She said, the very men who I, I had received at my house and treated as friends went away and slandered me and insinuated horrible things against me. But she said, it is true I have always lived a very sheltered life as far as coming across men of their description is concerned. But I have always been a rebel in thought and action and I am not likely to quail now before a handful of provincial plotters. Defiantly, she wrote, my private friendships no one has a right to control or question. If I see by a certain line of conduct, though it be opposed to the narrow judgment of Mrs Grundy, I can help right a wrong or raise a suffering soul, I shall pursue that line of conduct and ignore Mrs Grundy. New as she was to socialism and to the ILP in particular, she was forthright in her disappointment at the closed minds of her new comrades. She asked why socialists could not bring to bear the same critical views to the sex question which they brought to all other political and industrial questions. Socialist writers were critical of marriage in capitalist society, yet she said ILPers attack a comrade if they put any of these critiques into practice. Montefiore was basically accusing socialists of being hypocrites. Yet on the same day as this letter was written, Margaret MacDonald decided that in order, quote, to avoid scandal, she must tell Lady Aberdeen, president of the International Council of Women, women about Montefiore. She showed, so MacDonald showed a copy of the intercepted letter and when asked by Lady Aberdeen, MacDonald said that the matter was general knowledge and that this letter was the real reason for Belt's dismissal from his post at Hull. <laughs> Lady Aberdeen then tackled Montefiore on the subject, was, but was given, quote, her word of honour that all was right regarding her relations with Belt. But, but according to MacDonald, when faced with a copy of the intercepted letter, Montefiore agreed to withdraw from her public role in the forthcoming ICW Congress. So why would she concede to what amounted to blackmail based on a private letter which had been stolen from its recipient, Belt, and had been passed from hand to hand amongst socialists in Hull and London and was now in the hands of a leading figure in the women's movement? Although Montefiore made it clear that she felt that she'd done nothing to endanger her own reputation, she also knew how fragile such things could be. Moreover, she also now knew the kind of reading which was being made of the letter. Dr Webster, for example, said that the letter was in the style of lover to lover. Webster's assessment of the whole business was that Belt had been suffering from what he called vanity, from having come top of the poll at the recent school board elections and had become dissatisfied with his material position of 25 shillings a week. 
That had made him vulnerable. Mrs. Montefiore, said Webster, had then seduced him with so-called platonic love. He commented, I leave you to judge if that is possible. As a medical doctor, he also gave a diagnosis of Belt's condition. It was called, he said, satyriasis, a male version of nymphomania, which meant that Belt had lost all sense of moral right or wrong. Of all the doctors involved, he was the only one to make this diagnosis and the only one who tenaciously remained part of the Belt case. Montefiore may have felt that there were other ways to deal with this matter. By June, Belt had issued a writ against Margaret MacDonald alleging slander, that, Margaret, that MacDonald had claimed to Lady Aberdeen that Belt had been dismissed from his post for immoral conduct. Efforts were made to get Belt to withdraw the case. He said he would if MacDonald apologised and paid his costs. Others put pressure on Keir Hardy to intervene to stop the case. Margaret Macmillan, another leading ILP woman, said that she didn't want to appear as a witness and said that it wouldn't do the Macdonalds any good if she did appear. She commented, No wonder we lose every election. None of us seem to be able to keep out of the dirt. <laughs> At the final hour, Hardy looked through the evidence he was to give and struck out the passage saying that he had told Mrs Macdonald that the real reason for Belt's dismissal was the discovery of Montefiore's letter to Belt and Belt's relationship with Montefiore. The Macdonalds remained confident that Hardy had told them this. This was clearly not going to play well for the ILP should it come to court. Montefiore herself was not mentioned in the writ, although she was much discussed in the brief prepared for Macdonald. In Macdonald's defence, it was decided not to plead justification, i.e. that Belt had been dismissed for his immoral conduct, although they had clearly undertaken a great deal of research to build such a case. Instead, the plea was that the conversation between Margaret Macdonald and Lady Aberdeen was a privileged communication, making its truth or falsity irrelevant. It's also clear that, that the Macdonalds viewed this case as neither, as neither being instigated by Belt or actually being about his reputation. Their view was that, quote, this action is being used as a means for discovering what other persons have said or written of the plaintiff, i.e. Belt, or Mrs Montefiore, and therefore the most limited inspection of documents has been given to the plaintiff. Later, Ramsay MacDonald was to suggest that the slander action against his wife was withdrawn without Belt's knowledge, quote, by the lady who was behind him in it. Because, as you might be able to make out there, the case was amicably settled in favour of the defendant, MacDonald, but without costs, i.e. Belt did not have to pay MacDonald's costs. The crowd that had gathered at Leeds Assizes to see the famous witnesses who were due to be called, Keir Hardy and Lady Aberdeen in particular, nearly got the show that they were waiting for, as the lawyers almost fell out as the amicable settlement was being agreed. MacDonald's lawyer refused to agree with the statement that the words used, quote, did not and were not intended to impute immorality to the plaintiff. MacDonald denied having ever made the statement which Belt took to be slanderous. 
The issue of privilege meant that the case itself did not have to be resolved. No one really won, but public embarrassment, particularly for the socialists, was at the very last minute averted. Although the whole news, and this is the whole news, I'm sure something you read often, um, the whole news gave a subheading to its report on this, on the whole slander case, which you may just be able to make out it on the right. So their subheading is Mr. Belt and the Ladies. But there's nothing in the report which spells out what particular immorality is being imputed. It's not a salacious piece of reporting, and it's more likely that the headline actually refers to the involvement of the Countess of Aberdeen in the case, and to a lesser extent to Margaret MacDonald herself. Two columns away, on the other side, is another report of a legal case involving ex-Councillor Belt, with the same legal team defending him. Indeed, looking back through the whole press, there are quite a number of other court cases involving George Belt, usually as the defendant accused of, for example, assault, and always as part of a trade union dispute. It shows that Belt was probably much more experienced, despite his class background, than either Margaret MacDonald or indeed Montefiore at dealing with the courts. It's therefore not as surprising as it was made to seem by the MacDonalds that he resorted to the law. In addition, it's also clear that libel and slander cases between local political candidates, including Labour ones, were actually remarkably common. The difference with the Belt case was that private behaviour sat at the heart of the case. So what were the outcomes of the Belt case? Well, George Belt left his wife and came to live in London, but there's no evidence that he and Dora Montefiore lived together. Indeed, Montefiore lived as a respectable widow for the rest of her life. George Belt, George Belt lodged with a widow, whom he later married, and his two children from his first marriage came to live with the couple. Don't know when this picture was taken, but uh, the son looks like he's in uniform, so it's probably from the First World War. I'm still tracing how long the Belt-Montefiore friendship lasted. They certainly were involved in joint political work, such as serving uh, on the Hammersmith Distress Committee. In 1917, they were both speakers at a Trafalgar Square demonstration for adult suffrage. Yet in her autobiography, published in 1927, Montefiore does not really mention Belt or the Belt case. But the MacDonalds did not forget the episode. In 1904, Belt was adopted as the Labour candidate for Hammersmith, but the Labour Representation Committee, which was to become the Labour Party, refused to support his candidacy. Ramsay MacDonald said that there were objections to Belt's private life and succeeded in convincing the LRC's national executive that such a moral scallywag, as he called him, was not a fit and proper man to represent a constituency in the House of Commons. Belt stood anyway, but the lack of official endorsement, which was never explained, did not play well, and he was not elected. At the time, MacDonald wrote letters to Hull and Hammersmith soliciting evidence against Belt, and often referred in the correspondence, but not publicly, to the slander case. Yet the case does not seem to have been widely known about. For example, in 1905, Mrs. Wollstoneholm Elmy, 
suffragist, feminist, and interestingly saved by Millicent Fawcett and others from a free love union with Ben Elmy because of anxieties about the damaging scandal which would result for the suffrage movement if she lived without being married with Ben Elmy. Um, Mrs. Wollstoneholm Elmy wrote to a mutual friend, I know nothing of the libel case she speaks of, but I know, love and trust Mrs. Montefiore, who is a large-hearted, high-minded woman of singular heart and influence. The slander case might not be well known, but the antipathy between MacDonald and Montefiore was readily apparent, particularly at the Socialist Women's International Congresses in 1907 and indeed in 1910. This is from the conference and Dora Montefiore is up there on the left. Uh, Margaret MacDonald didn't make the cartoons, I'm afraid. MacDonald represented the Independent Labour Party and Montefiore the Social Democratic Federation. Her interest in the ILP had been short-lived. MacDonald's feelings are apparent in her Congress report. MacDonald said, For the sake of letting things go smoothly, we put up quietly with much more of Mrs Montefiore than is justified by her influence or representative character in the British movement. So, how should we interpret the Belt case? Although this was a scandal that never really happened, there was a considerable amount of gossip which damaged individuals. Belt lost his post and was not put forward by his party to defend his seat on the council, despite bewilderment expressed in the press at the loss of a respected councillor. His marriage was also over. The threat of a private matter becoming public, therefore, had both public and private consequences. For Montefiore, there were lessons to learn about trust and what confidentiality might mean in politics. She also began to learn about the differences between socialist theory and practice, a matter which she would not drop in her subsequent career as a dissident member of the Social Democratic Federation. She was now determined to practice a woman-focused socialism where such hypocrisy would not be possible. She spent the rest of her political life working on this, whether as a suffragist, a socialist, an internationalist, an anti-militarist and communist, as well as a widow, a mother, a friend, a poet, a journalist, propagandist and always a political woman. The Belt case could have stopped her 10-year political journey in its tracks. Instead, it forced her to reflect if her chosen path was to be a radical outsider who spoke her mind. She would need, if, if that was to be the case, she would need not only political commitment, and the Belt case marks her transition to an unequivocal socialism, but also she would need personal resilience. So... Remember the title of the talk? What of censorship and self-censorship? Finally, she gets to it. So here I think we should focus on, as perhaps you might have gathered, on the role of letters. Both those that are present in the archive and those that are absent. As a vehicle for censorship of the self or of others. All the letters in the Belt case were private. Indeed, some are explicitly marked private and confidential. Yet they were passed from hand to hand, copied, read out to meetings, or their contents reported out uh, on, to other, uh, on by third parties. The existence or knowledge of the letters, as distinct from their actual contents, was, <clears throat> was enough to censor public and private behaviour. 
Moreover, private, uncensored words can have a peculiar power when they are made public, maybe even more so when they are in stolen letters or being recounted second or third hand in further letters. Suppressing them after they had become part of the rumour mill was almost impossible, and their damaging effects were not alleviated by the settling of the Belt versus MacDonald slander case in 1900. The letters themselves had a value not just to their author or the intended recipient. After the Belt case was formally concluded, Keir Hardy asked for all the letters used in the slander case because he wanted to destroy them. He was advised by solicitors to refrain from this, as they may not have heard the last of this matter. If they were attacked, it was said that the letters might be useful, a form of insurance. And this decision means that some of the letters from the Belt case have survived in the archives of the Independent Labour Party. In addition, the brief prepared for Margaret Macdonald's defence has survived through the accident of her being the wife of a prime minister, although she was actually long dead before he took office, whose personal papers, including those of his deceased wife, necessarily became official papers and are located in the National Archives. Many silences or presences within the archives are, we know, much more to do with serendipity than deliberate acts like burning or weeding of personal papers. However, the intercepted, stolen, copied, gossiped about letter has, as I said, not survived. This letter from, from Dora Montefiore to George Belt was intercepted by his wife, Harriet. Soon it was reported to be doing the rounds of Yorkshire, including Mrs Belt's friends. She showed the letter to Webster and his wife, who George had been recuperating with in Leeds, while Davison kept a copy of what he called the incriminating letter. At Margaret Macdonald's request, Webster sent a copy to her of this letter, remarking, it is a poor business interfering in other people's affairs, but I am sure it ought to be done. <laughs> As for the fate of the original letter, the brief compiled by the Macdonald solicitors says that Mrs Belt eventually surrendered it to her husband and that he was understood to have destroyed it. However, this claim is annotated with a handwritten question mark which suggests that they were unable to corroborate this statement. The detail in the brief about the letter, found in a copy of the book Timothy's Quest, suggests that someone had seen it but that now no copies existed. There were further fishing expeditions after the court case to establish more about the incriminating letter, particularly during the period when Macdon Ramsay MacDonald intervened to, to prevent uh, Belt standing to be uh, a Labour um, MP in 1905. One letter at that time referred to, quote, more serious rumours relating to George Belt and a certain lady, which was generally regarded as, quote, a calumny. Here, the silence in the archive exacerbated the initial effects of the Belt case. Now, sadly, there is no formal Dora Montefiore archive, so her many letters and the diary she mentions in her autobiography only survive if they surface in other archival collections, like uh, Wollstoneholm Elmy's Correspondence Circle or the Francis Johnson Papers of the Independent Labour Party, or that they were published in the press, but often they're a rather different kind of letter. 
Comparing her private letter to Keir Hardy in 1899, when she set out her side of the story, with her later autobiography is, I think, instructive. By the time of her writing from a Victorian to a modern, one can perhaps see the unacknowledged belt case in her opening remarks. She said, or she wrote, Now, however, that the fight is over and the time for going over the battlefield has come, I, having observed during a long life how facts and events can be misrepresented till they become in history embalmed distortions, desire to put down during the evening of my life the truth, not only about myself, but about many of my fellow workers in the pioneer causes in which we have fought shoulder to shoulder. However, she does not place her own personal or private needs very far forward in the story. She does refer to the suffering many of us underwent, making clear that a price was paid for political activism. But if that was in terms of what we now term personal relationships, that is not detailed. Her marriage is dealt with in a paragraph, and nothing is said about the relationship itself. She does refer to the balls, picnics and race meetings which had filled to overflowing my short married life. Instead, she defines herself as, quote, a woman in the 19th century who, because she strove to do her best as sole parent to her children, found herself constantly up against wrong and unsympathetic laws and without political power to alter or abolish such laws. So she's presenting herself as a woman, a single parent, and most of all, she defines herself when looking back in 1925, when she was actually a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, as, quote, a suffragist who never used violence, though she suffered violence, but who was forced by a sense of duty towards other women who were not so free as she was to act publicly in the cause that was dear to her in order to help bring before the public the question of the gross disabilities under which women were suffering. There are opportunities when she could have referred directly to George Belt, for example, in her description of her experience as a clarion vanner, although she does comment on the very fine feeling of intellectual and spiritual comradeship that she found there. She does quote a contemporary account of her visit, which includes the statement, so when I said that he's not mentioned, I was, I was, I was lying to you, uh, because... There it says, so this is a, uh, an extract from the Clarion newspaper, and it just says, Councillor Belt also left for Hull to attend some important meeting. And he never appears again in From a Victorian to a Modern. Perhaps even more tellingly, Margaret MacDonald never gets a mention. And Dora knew and names most of the great and the good in the socialist and women's movement in Britain and beyond. While the figure who is harder to erase from the story, the future Labour Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, is completely overlooked until her account reaches 1917, when he spoke at what was called the lead Soviet greeting the, the first Russian Revolution, a resolution which was seconded by Montefiore herself. By the middle of the 1920s, when the autobiography was written, MacDonald would not have wanted the world to be reminded of his association with the communist Montefiore or his own fleeting pro-Bolshevism. Hence, one suspects Montefiore's decision to include him only at this point shows that the Belt case was actually not forgotten. 
The effects of the Belt case are also apparent in the different way in which she represents and recounts her own feelings in the autobiography and her letter to Keir Hardie of the 27th of April 1899. In her autobiography, she breaks off her narrative to talk about her feelings for her son and the effect of her political activism on him. However, it's clear that her own emotional life is outside the parameters of the project she set herself in From a Victorian to a Modern. In this, she's typical of the new genre of suffragette autobiography, which began to appear in the 1920s. Suffragette autobiographies and Montefiore's memoir, and I'm, you know, her, hers is a rather different thing, contain, both contain self-censorship in terms of how they choose to narrate their lives and what aspects of their lives they include. But before we conclude that Dora Montefiore could not and did not want to engage with her own feelings, we should look more closely at her letter recounting her experience of the Belt case. And I'm not expecting you to be able to read it, but at least this is page one of the letter. Now here, there is really surprisingly little self-censorship. Her account of Belt's breakdown and the nature of their friendship reveals what a 19th century woman, a self-declared Victorian, felt, about, felt able to write to a man, Hardy, who she'd only met recently and, and didn't know well. At a number of points in the letter, she writes about feelings, hers and Belt's. And feelings is the word that she uses. She says when Belt talked to her about his feelings immediately before his breakdown, he cried the whole time. I don't know anything more terrible to see than a strong man in tears. When he returned from the infirmary, quote, he repeated all his feelings for me, and she refers to the times that B and I had known our feelings towards each other. So both of them had feelings. Belt wanted Dora's reassurance on this point. Quote, he feared the troubles and the worry I had gone through might have altered my feelings. In this closely typed nine-page letter, Dora spoke of her emotional life. She had had, quote, as happy a married life as ever fell to the lot of any woman. But she was bewildered and angry about how others who she believed should have known better had behaved and judged both Belt and herself. She said, I have reason to know that if B had had an ordinary li liaison in London, such as a man can understand, and had then thrown the woman over and gone back to his ordinary life, all would have been hushed up and only the woman would have been the sufferer. But because he has chosen to idealise a woman and to announce his intention of continuing to do so, and because the man in the street cannot understand that sort of thing, they announce their intention of hounding him down. Directly addressing Hardy, she wrote... I think you will see after what I have told you that this feeling with both of us is not as you characterise it at best a selfish whim. That's a quote of Hardy. We have both gone through a fiery ordeal, first from the fates and then from fellow men. But every sharp agony has had the effect of bringing us closer together, of testing each other's souls. She challenged the idea that she had brought B into this present position. And these are her words. From the time I was swept on along a stream of tragic circumstances from which there was no escape except by selfish and individualistic action, action which I should have despised myself for taking. 
These are not the words of someone who was carefully self-censoring herself. She was self-conscious in the effect her words might have. She said to Hardy, don't think I write this defiantly. I write it with keen suffering, but I feel that at all risks, personal freedom of soul must be upheld. She was keenly aware that a range of people had sought to censor the behaviour, activism and even employment of her and George Belt, applying, she said, sliding scales of morality. This letter had clearly, and you may just be able to see, been corrected before it was sent. And it also has a short handwritten addition at the very end thanking Keir Hardy for his postcard sending best wishes to Montefiore's son who had recently had an operation and who Dora was now nursing. Now this suggests that the manner in which she represents herself and her story is at the very least considered and that the way in which emotion was handled in the letter was deliberate. Now self-censorship is also of course a deliberate act. However in this case I think it seems not to be self-censorship. But, maybe you're thinking this as well, but is Dora Montefiore pulling the wool over the eyes of her biographer? Did she have something to hide from herself, from her contemporaries, from posterity? Well, I think the, the reconstruction of the Belt case, which you've just been listening to, from a range of sources hidden or overlooked in various archives, some of which have been deliberately silenced, suggests that she did not. However, the Belt case does, I think, reveal a great deal about contemporary ideas, not just whether socialists should censor the private behaviour of their comrades. So, what do you think?